Blog Talk Radio. Check out their website. 
CackleHatchery.com for posted weekly specials and discounts. That's CackleHatchery.com. Want to protect your hens from the damage caused by an overly affectionate rooster? Nothing protects hens better than the Hen Saver Hen Apron. Hen Saver Hen Aprons come in several different sizes to fit both bantam and large fowl hens. They also come in several different styles and colors. Give your hens the protection they deserve by purchasing Hen Saver Hen Aprons today. 100% of all proceeds goes to provide care to rescued animals at Crazy K Farm in Hempstead, Texas. Purchase your Hen Saver Hen Aprons at hensaver.com. That's hensaver.com. The Yard Bird Chicken Plucker takes the hassle out of backyard chicken processing by fully defeathering birds in less than 15 seconds. The compact size makes it easy to transport and easy to store. The one and a half horsepower motor and 20 inch stainless steel tub can handle two eight pound birds at the same time. There are no belts or pulleys to wear out and no adjustments necessary, which makes it virtually maintenance free. For more information about how you can own this must-have chicken processing product, visit YardBirdChickenPluckers.com today. That's YardBirdChickenPluckers.com. Tasty Grubs by Tasty Worms Nutrition are the original dried black soldier fly larvae made right here in the USA. Tasty Grubs are high in protein and calcium, vital nutrients for laying hens. Customers have reported an increase in shell quality, egg taste, and a reduction in molting time. For a limited time, get a bag of Tasty Grubs 100% free. Simply enter tastyworms.com forward slash whisper into your web browser and add one to your cart today. Save 10% on all other products such as dried mealworms by entering the coupon code whisper at checkout. That's tastyworms.com forward slash whisper. Hi, I'm country music artist Nathan Osmond, and you're listening to Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. And the mighty bird against prejudice continues his fight for law and order. So when you hear that cry in the sky, you'll know it's Super Chicken. Alrighty, thank you very much for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer brought to you by Compact Feeds. Hey, it's tour time. I'm getting ready to hit the road. We'll be heading out this Saturday morning, I guess a week from tomorrow, and I believe we'll be hitting six or seven states up in the north looking forward to it. I love to go on tour. I meet tons of fans and tons of chicken lovers, and again, we've been calling it for years. We've been doing this over a decade now. Uh, touring the country, spreading the chicken love. And you can see our tour schedule, where we're going to be, what times we're going to be there um, on our website, chickenwhisperer.com. Just click on 2017 event schedule, and you'll see it. I know I've got events coming up in Virginia, Maryland, Delaware, Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut. Uh, maybe that's the six right there. And so totally, totally looking forward to that Um I've got tons of books I'll be uh, autographing and selling. We've got tons of magazines we're going to be giving away for free. We've got tons of information, more than I've ever had in any tour. Um, Of course, we know why. Uh, Tons of information from the USDA APHIS, Biosecurity for Birds program we'll be handing out. Tons of the really nice spiral-bound notebooks on information about avian influenza, 
um, exotic Newcastle uh, flyers, handouts, calendars. I have like 500 calendars uh, that uh, people just like yourselves submitted photos from birds in your backyard that are in this calendar. So tons and tons of handouts, free handouts. We'll have prizes. We'll have trivia. It's going to be awesome. Our events are fabulous, and uh, we get really good turnouts. There, there's, there'll be cookies provided, drinks provided. Um, we just have a really good time on tour. So check that out over at chickenwhisper.com where I'm going to be. Um, I think it starts, uh, the first event is on April 10th, and we have events all the way up to April, I think, 27th uh, up in the Northeast. So we look forward to seeing you on tour. Um, yes, there's been some more avian influenza outbreaks here in the Southeast, and um, that's not what today's topic is about, but it is uh, um, very important. Uh, especially if you live in that area, to consider uh, beefing up your biosecurity program you have in your backyard. Uh, it's seeing this right now as the uh, the outbreak we had a couple of years ago, uh, but it is rolling into the season where two years ago we, we had the massive outbreaks um, about this time. So we're not out of the woods yet regarding temperature or uh, flight patterns or, or any of that yet. Um, and so it might be time to, uh, and if you're not, if you don't have a policy, if you're not sure what biosecurity is, then definitely do the research on that. And um, it, it, baby steps, you know, start off with, with what you think you can accomplish successfully. You know, if I go and I'm doing a class in uh, the suburbs of Atlanta, and the majority of my participants are, we'll just stereotype here for a minute, soccer moms and minivans that have 12 pet chickens in their backyard, and they're all named. The realization of them stopping by a uh, coin car wash and hosing off their tires and wheels and wheel wells after going to the feed store, I think is just, uh, to expect that is just uh, fantasy land. It's just not going to happen. Um, but I do think they can do some things, uh, and every little step can benefit them in imp implementing a good biosecurity plan, like having a little coffee can nailed to their coop uh, with some hand sanitizer in it and using that not only after they handle their chickens, but before they handle their chickens. Having one set of boots you only wear in your backyard. You're not wearing them for your neighbors. You're not wearing them for the feed store. You're not wearing them in the car. You're not wearing them for the park. You're not wearing them for the zoo. Only in your backyard. Uh, if you can't do that because you just bought a super expensive pair of work boots or, or, or uh, riding boots or your favorite boots, and I said, no, I don't wear these. Uh, foot, foot bath consider having a foot bath for your favorite boots before you go into the bird area um, and uh, and doing that. You know, don't borrow tools from your neighbor, especially if they have chickens as well. And if you have no other choice, disinfect them before they come onto your property, disinfect them before, after they, before they go off your property, um, and, and so forth. So there's some things that you can do uh, that are realistic. I know some people will be, because uh, we're all humans, so I love my birds so much, I'm going to do every single thing in this pamphlet to protect my birds. And that's okay, but I have a feeling that that will last a few days, and then you'll start getting slack again and not doing everything. So I'd much rather you choose some things that you really realistically can continue to do that's not going to cost you a lot of money uh, because they're all little steps uh, in, in incorporating that biosecurity plan in your backyard. Hey, removing those wild bird feeders and bird baths from your backyard, uh, which is doing nothing but attracting, the, attracting wild birds to your backyard and, and disease to your backyard for your backyard flock. Um, and, you know, you know the, the scenario would be there. Uh, you have wild birds flying to this bird feeder, and what are they doing while they're up there? Well, they're scattering bird feed down into the grass, 
which is going to attract your backyard chickens over to under the bird feeder to eat that bird seed that they've spilt. And what are they doing while they're up there? The wild birds, they're pooping down into the grass with that bird seed they're scattering down there for your now backyard chickens. So that's that's one example. Uh, your chicken hops up and drinks out of a bird bath um, that wild birds were just taking back. So so that's a that's a great step in into protecting bio you know, you're you're implementing your biosecurity plan. So uh, today we're talking about though with poultry scientist, Dr. McCrate, DHD. We're talking about, hey, one of my favorites with her, poultry research translated. So I'm always excited to hear what she has in store, what she's found out there in poultry science land, and how she's going to translate this into something we can use in our backyard. Say, hey, this may mean, or this may, or you may not want to, or you may want to do this, or hey, there may be some merit to this, that, or the other we've seen uh, out there spreading across the social media network. So uh, let's give a big round of applause and welcome to our good friend, Dr. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. You too. Hey, I thought today was going to be first day. Really, well, spring break starts, and um, I was looking. Oh, at that the was two weeks ago for us. <laughs> where you, wow, y'all got early. Wow, yeah, most of the folks down here, we're in Georgia actually right now, and and most of the spring break is the next two weeks. There may be some that had some last week, but this week is the big week. This coming week, I guess I should say, it's <laughs> about a day, and they're all crazy, going, "Yeah, no school for a week." So uh, yeah, we're working out that. <laughs> All, all kids and all the campers will be rolling in for the weekend, and the barbecue fires and the cookouts will start happening, and uh, and the kids will be riding their scooters and all that kind of fun stuff. So it's going to get crazy here for the next week. But yes, yeah, spring break down here in the uh, in the south. So, um, but thanks for joining us. Hope you're doing well. You're all kind of settled there near Auburn. Yeah, we're going to get a little bit more unsettled. It looks like our building's going to do a renovation, so we're all we're all moving temporarily. Um, so yeah, I just, I get here, I get settled and boom, we're moving. (laughs) Good thing I haven't put a lot of stuff in my office yet. (laughs) Um, what I did, Andy, is I went through, um, some journal articles from this year and last year to find some things that I thought might be of interest to your listeners. Not all of them are from the United States or even from our, our continent, um, but I think you're going to like them. I got four of them for us today. And I was going to start off by talking about uh, free-range systems, um, laying hens in commercial free-range housing systems. Now, this one comes from Spain, okay? Um, as you all know, the European Union has a certain set of rules, and Spain follows them. And they wanted to, the researchers wanted to take a look at the study and see what factors or patterns were were influencing the patterns of space used by commercial laying hens in a free range system, and you know see if there was some sort of welfare indication there. Um, so interesting. Anytime you you figure out how a bird uses the space. Um, is always interesting, and it, it might be something, a subject that some of your younger listeners may want to pay attention to for um, doing behavior work with their own backyard flocks for a science fair project. If they want to go out there and and every half hour count the chickens and where they are in the yard, whether it's in the first, second, third, or fourth quadrant of the yard, and 
see how that changes every afternoon for two or three weeks. Yeah, that might be something that's kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, so what did these researchers do? They took three free-range Langhan flocks and, and studied them for one production cycle. And how did they do this? Well, they took 150 hens, gave them individual tags, and um, that's 150 hens per flock. So you can't tag every bird in the flock and then ask a poor graduate student to, you know, what was, you know, bird 1,192 doing for the entirety of this day? Yeah, that would make a student cry. That would make anybody cry <laughs> to try to do that for the entire production cycle. So they took a subsample of the birds and um, basically they looked at um, the use of the outdoor area during midday um, and different times of the day. And what they found, um, let me scroll down here for just a moment. Um, what they found is they had a, a, a 24,000 meter squared outdoor area that gave the birds about four meters square per hen. Um, on the side of the building, they had 18, uh, they had pop holes, um, and they were about 18 meters long. And, you know, it was a regular old chicken house, you know, 600 or over 600 meters long. And, you know, there was a fence surrounding the outdoor area, and there was grass, but no trees in the outdoor area. No trees, no bushes, no no cover uh, available to the birds. And the hen houses um, had an identical number of self-closing nests and automatic pan feeders, nipple drinkers, metal perches. And um, the metal perches were over a, um, a slatted area, so the droppings had a place to drop down into. Um, natural ventilation, natural light. Uh, there was some supplementation with artificial light so that they were on long days, 16 hours of light and 8 hours of dark, adding up to a total of 24 hours. Uh, so they were always allowed access to food, but the food was only kept indoors, not outdoors. Mm -hmm. So all the farms had identical management procedures, and it was all following, you know, their their label quality assurance program for the, the label for the company. Um, these birds were beak trimmed at hatch. They were Issa Browns. Isn't that the one that you like, Andy? We do like those, yep. The density inside the house was not, was um, inside the house when they placed them was nine hens per meter squared. And they maintained those birds until they were 69 weeks old. So they were in there, you know, till they arrived and then until they were through with their first production cycle. And if you, um, if you wanted to know what kind of observations that were being made, um, they, their observation period started when the outdoor area was made accessible to the hens. And, you know, that, and that started, you know, took place one day every other week. And that was from week 20 until week 69. And all the data was collected by the same person for the entire study. So um, during each sampling day, three observations were made, alternating between the indoors and the outdoors, between 
10 a.m. and 1900 hours, which is 7 p.m. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they located the position of as many of the tagged birds as they could possibly find by walking slowly through um, predefined straight paths that covered the entire indoor or outdoor area, and um, so they were we were they were looking and counting and you know when the person went into that. Uh, building, there was a five-minute period where um, the birds could habituate to the the person's presence before they started mm-hmm. making the observations. Because you know, you open up a door and all the birds go, "What's going on?" <laughs> and so they had to they have to wait till the birds go back to, "Oh, nothing's going on." Oops, yep. hold on. No Let me turn my. How do I turn it down? I think I hold it down. Yeah, there we go. Sorry about that. No worries. Okay. Well, just playing out, you know, door, and, and uh, Caleb got a new rocket. So I could hear him going the countdown. He was going, five, four, three, two. <laughs> um, I found this kind of inter- interesting. Um, they they kind of, the bird locations were registered as, X and Y coordinates within the space. And they have this, I don't know, this sounds like something I'm going to have to look into, but the uh, the bird locations were collected with the Chicketizer software. Now, I think that's hilarious. Good naming process by these researchers. <laughs> and um, so, you know, the person who's doing the observations was, you know, carrying a portable computer, probably a tablet. And um, locating the birds and, yeah. Um, So there you go. And then, you know, they just put it on the screen and that way they can kind of track when the bird was using the space. Um, Of course, there was statistical analysis made. So what were some of the results? I know that's what you're waiting for. Yeah. All right. So results. The use of the outdoor area was lower during midday, but remained stable across all the age periods. Remember, they did this from week 20 to week 69, so better part of a year. Tagged hens were classified according to their use of the outdoor area. Were they using it heavily, medium, light, or never? And that is per age period. So, almost 50%, 49.5% were never observed using the outdoor area. So, that was the highest category. <laughs> um, it, as they found out, if the hens use the outdoor area early on in their life, um, like during the first 16 uh, weeks from like week 20 to, to week 36, that's the first 16 weeks. Um, that basically laid the groundwork for how, you know, their use of the outdoor area later on in their life. Most of the space parameters didn't vary on the, the age period. Um, really the only activity center indoors um, increased as the, the, Birds increased with age, and the mean distance from the hen 
house tended to increase over time. Okay, so if the hen was using the outdoor space, then as time progressed, as she got older, she ventured a little further out away from the, the edge of the, the chicken house into the outdoor space. Um, birds with a higher frequency of use of the outdoor area had larger home ranges and activity centers and showed lower plumage damage. Um, they also had a lower incidence of, get this, foot pad lesions, foot pad dermatitis. Mm -hmm. uh, con, on, on the flip side here, contrastingly, birds showed higher total walked distance indoors. Um, birds that showed a, a higher total walk distance indoors uh, had a higher incidence of foot pad dermatitis. So, you know, there are individual differences in, in how they use the outdoor space. Um, but the most relevant factor being that, you know, if they use the space early, they're going to use it a lot. Birds that visited the outdoor, outdoor area um, had larger areas that they kind of called their home range. And, you know, plumage condition and footbed foot pad dermatitis um, are two things that we look at when it comes to the welfare of laying hens. So, you know, are, are we, by putting them outdoors, are we affecting their welfare? Do, do, I, understand ahead, by, do I understand that by listening? Do they, um, the hens that went outside earlier stayed there longer than ones that kind of meandered out later in the day? If that's the case, if I'm understanding that correctly. During, during, no, 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 it's more like if they wandered outside early in their lives, they tended to uh, go back outside more as an adult as they got older. I see. Okay, got it, got it. And then if they went outside, they had a larger home range and they had better foot condition and um, better plumage condition or lower plumage damage if that's what you want to call it and that's how they worded it so something to consider and a lot of that you know that like I mentioned there was a lot of birds per square meter and when these birds have outdoor access a lot of people don't see the majority of the birds outdoors so they're wondering you know why yeah, what is it? Why aren't they going out there? Well, they're a flock animal, and you know, unless you're pushing them out the door, sometimes they never leave the indoors. They set up little territories. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to share that particular study with you because I just found it so interesting that 49.5 percent never went outside. Impressive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's say. Did it did it have the details of the entry and exit door, the pot door, if you will, um, of that particular setup? Um, okay, it says a total of 18 meters of pop holes divided over at least 16 hatches provided access to the outdoor area. So there were 16 pop 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 holes. Mm -hmm. um, that's what they call them in in Europe. Right. They call them pop holes. 
And so if you take 18 meters and divide that by 16, that's how much doorway access they had. Okay. That gives that, that, that um, that's Cause good. Because we know that some yeah. hens will guard entrances and not let anybody through and be jerks. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen it. <laughs> Yep. We all know chicken behavior. It's just a fact of the matter. <laughs> or sometimes you hear folks that will say, okay, well, in order for them to put, um, um, what is it, free range on the egg carton, the, according to the um, standards, the chickens have to have access to the outside. And that could be one small pop door at the end of this 300-foot open barn. And so, you, you know, Obviously, that would limit the number probably. And then there's a small little 12-foot pad outside. So um, I was just curious relating to things that you hear in relationship to today um, versus that, that study. So that, that's interesting that they did have multiple locations for the chicks, chickens and hens to get to, uh, to go outside. That's, that's yeah, they had over a meter opening at yeah, yeah. each entrance, like 1.125 meters of, of open space for them to shoot through and enjoy the rays outside. Awesome. Okay. The next study I just came across, and we're probably going to have to have me redo one of the the chapters (laughs) that I've already sent you, Andy. I'm sorry. Um, It has to do with purchase, and I know I've already sent you that that section. Um, You're going our editing, we've got plenty of time to make corrections. Okay. <laughs> this is uh, research that was done at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada, and it's the development of perching behavior in three strains of pullets reared, reared in furnished cages, and I love this research study. Let me tell you why. Um, so, first of all, we know that Cage systems are not phased out here in the Americas, um, but there's varying systems of cage systems, conventional systems that are out there now. There's aviary, there's um, there's strictly floor, and there's still conventional cage systems. And but honestly, how pullets develop their perching behavior in furnace cages. Um, you know, that's, that's the, the question here. I really like this study because they used three heritage strains. Um, well, two heritage strains. And what does everybody seem to have in commercial poultry production? White leghorns. Right. I'm going to give you a shot at guessing what the other two might be. In, in just poultry production in general, like the No, like in this or- study. What do you hope that they used? And this is a perching study in cages, so white leg urns. I'm going to go ahead and say probably because 60% of the brown egg layers, uh, the, the eggs that you find in the store are from Isa Browns, or also pronounced Isa Browns. No, these are heritage strains. So where, where would the, heritage, where would the Isa Brown have been developed yeah, from? That, nowhere, yep, absolutely. Well, sex. No, no, so, no. The other st- small state. Oh, Rhode Island. 
Yeah, Rhode Island Red. That's one of the the heritage birds that they use. Okay, so Rhode they Island use Red. a white leghorn, a Rhode Island Red, and they use the Columbian Plymouth Rock. Okay. And they're, they have this cage system um, called a combi cage. Uh, and they basically had a platform and perches, feeder, water, and they did a really good job of putting a, a diagram in here. Um, there were four elevated locations. The birds could be down on the floor, or they could be up on the platform, or they could be on one of three perches. And because the cages are longer, um, the the researchers split them up into four sections for observation. And they looked at the number of birds that used each section um, in each location. And again, one observer did all the observations at, um, let's see, they did it at noon from one to 14 weeks of age. And then at 1600 hours, which is what, four o'clock? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. So right after lights were turned off. And that was from um, four to 14 weeks of age. So statistical analysis was done. And, you know, it's kind of interesting. They added in that second um, period when, the, you know, after 1400 hours, they considered that night. So you're really taking a look at how the birds are using the space after lights go out. Mm-hmm. And so, interestingly, on average, the poets use the vertical space more during the day than at night. Um, mm-hmm. That did change uh, with age and strain in their utilization of the four different locations in the, in the cage at at both of the time periods, so um, whether it was night or or midday, um, essentially they found that the the Columbian Plymouth rocks used the perches and the platform the most, and the Rhode Island Reds used those particular areas the least. <laughs> and the highest, yeah, the highest perch in the cage was rarely used. Interesting. Mm -hmm. The birds showed a preference for perching in sections that were closest to the cage walls. That's also Mm -hmm. kind of interesting. They don't necessarily pick the middle. And, you know, this is also something that that your younger listeners could do or shoot, even your your adult listeners could do this. And (laughs) they could, um, they also found that there were differences across the strains and, 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 how the the this is going to go into how furnished cages can be built so that the furnishings are utilized as they are meant. So if if nobody really liked the highest perch, if you were designing cages, you wouldn't put it in there. And in this but, 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 particular, I was, thinking, I was thinking that same thing. Then the next highest perch becomes the highest perch. So then would they not put a perch on that one? And See, on you're one? thinking like a grad student now. We need to get you <laughs> to grad school, Andy. <laughs> I'll be your professor. There you go. Okay. 
So maybe, you know, you have to kind of think about this. Well, was it because of the proximity of the perch to the ceiling or did just nobody like being up higher? And their highest perch was placed directly over the platform area. And we know that the birds preferred the platform area. So maybe that highest perch was too high? Mm -hmm. Don't know. Then the mid-level perch was actually placed directly over the drinker. So you know how sometimes if you've got uh, nipple drinkers, the birds want to Mm -hmm. perch on the nipple drinker itself, and and then the nipple drinker starts to bow, and then eventually they break it. Because that's not what a nipple drinker is supposed to bear weight on. Well, they put the perch directly above that. And I guess the good thing is, then they're not pooping on the nipple drinker. They're pooping all around it, but not on it. And then they had a, um, the mid, so there was the high perch that nobody liked. And that was directly over the platform. The platform was at about the same level as what was called the feeder perch. The feeder perch was directly over the feeder. I have mixed feelings about this because it's an yeah, open right. feeder. <laughs> Thinking some poor grad student had to clean that out every day because <laughs> we all know how much they go. And then the lowest perch was the drinker perch. So there you go. If if you kind of looked at the layout that they provided that from the side, then you can kind of see where everything was. And so it was really kind of interesting. Um, you know, as I scroll down to the, the script, oh boy, this is a long paper. <laughs> scroll, scroll, scroll. Um, as you, uh, as you take a look at things, um, you know, you think that, oh yeah, at night they're gonna they're gonna go up high. They they think they're back in the jungle. Apparently not. Not really their favorite place to go. Um, they're used to the vertical space at night. They thought maybe they didn't, you know, give them an, a long enough drop dusk period, um, so that the birds would just kind of head for the higher perches. So you know, at least they're recognizing that. Yeah, this was their first shot at shot at it, but maybe they could have done some things better. And that's something that we always want people to think about is, yes, you, you did research, but what could you have done better or differently to get, uh, get to the main question? So we always want people to think about the next research project or the next um, hypothesis. Um, some of the results, uh, they thought maybe a study with a larger number of observation periods and more replications would help be more accurate because they had um, a high standard error in some of the results. And and the more samples you take, the less likely you're going to have high standard errors. You want, you know, the more samples you take, the more accurate your results are. It's like a repeated measure. Um, let's see. As and they they used shavers heritage lines and so maybe if they changed up whose heritage lines they used they would have ended up with a different result but it's okay to recognize 
where you could have done things differently. But I found it really interesting, um, and I hope your listeners did too, to to see that this kind of work that was done so many years ago is being done with some of the heritage breeds. That's kind of nice to see. Um, And, you know, maybe the shape of the perch could be different, or maybe they could do, um, you know, different breeds like say Buckeyes or Delawares. I'm not biased at all. <laughs> they could choose some of these breeds or, or Wyandots that some of the backyard block owners enjoy a great. All right. Any questions? Uh, oh, and I'm not online, Andy. So if any questions pop up on uh, Facebook or your, your chat room, let me know, please. Sounds good. If we're okay. halfway and we've got two more, I can go ahead and do a commercial break in between them. Oh, sure. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, we'll do that. Folks, thanks for tuning in today. We're talking with Bridget McRae, Dr. Bridget McRae, Ph.D., and we're talking all about one of my favorite topics when she comes on, Poultry Research Translated, because I had posted on my Facebook page earlier today how some popular chicken bloggers, they'll read a story and it's, they, they, don't, they misunderstand it, and then they go and they post bad information or wrong information. I have two examples of that on my Facebook page right now of how, you know, just, just it's very sometimes difficult to really uh, pertain to that. So, um, hey, check that out over on our Facebook page. Always holding feet to the fire when it comes to uh, the right information, science-based, fact-based, study-based information, which, by the way, you can get in our magazine. You can subscribe. We're running a special right now. Buy one subscription, get one free. Okay, buy one subscription, get one free. You got to call in to uh, to get that special. You can subscribe, and then hey, maybe you have a chicken-loving friend, and you can get them a free year subscription to Chicken Whisperer magazine. So you, that also is over on our Facebook page of how you can do that and subscribe. And more and more of our magazines are starting to creep into feed stores around the country, so you may find them at the checkout counter. So uh, we're going to go to a quick break. When we come back, there will be more poultry research translated. Stay with us, folks. Ware Manufacturing has been building quality hutches since 1983. Ware manufactures modern chicken hutches, barns, pens, and nest boxes designed especially for the backyard flock. Ware offers hutches and pens for every yard size and every chicken keeper's budget. Visit their website at waremfginc.com. That's W-A-R-E-M-F-G-I-N-C.com. Or call them to find a retailer near you at 1-888-824-7257. Ware Manufacturing. Since 1921, Stromberg's has been a family-owned and operated business providing quality poultry and poultry supplies to their customers. Today, the Strombergs family offers over 200 different breeds of poultry, including chickens, waterfowl, and game birds. They also offer poultry supplies for both the beginner and experienced poultry keeper. Strombergs should be on the top of your list when it's time to order your new day-old baby chicks and poultry supplies. Order online today at strombergschickens.com. That's strombergschickens.com. Do you provide a heat source for your backyard chickens in the winter? 
in most cases, it's not necessary. But if you choose to provide a heat source for your backyard chickens, it's imperative to use a safe and effective heat source, and the only one I recommend is the Sweeter Heater. The Sweeter Heater is a safe, completely sealed, washable, non-breakable, energy-efficient, long-lasting and reliable specific area heater that comes with a three-year warranty. Ditch the dangerous heat lamp this season and invest in the only heater I recommend, the Sweeter Heater. Purchase the Sweeter Heater online at SweeterHeater.com. That's SweeterHeater.com. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer. If you're in the market for a new incubator, then look no further than GQF. They have a great selection of tabletop and cabinet-style incubators at prices you can afford. I love my GQF Genesis Model 1588. It has a large picture window and an automatic thermostat, which makes for a better hatch every time. Go pick out your new incubator at GQFRadio.com. That's GQFRadio.com. Ideal Poultry has been a family-owned and operated business since 1937. Their business is built on customer service and quality poultry. From rare white and brown egg layers to broilers, ducks, turkeys, and bantams, Ideal Poultry is the largest supplier of backyard poultry in the United States, shipping close to 5 million chicks annually. Visit them online at IdealPoultry.com. That's IdealPoultry.com. Come back. Come back. From our family to yours, feed your chickens the way nature intended. Pure, wholesome goodness. Kalmbach Feeds. Visit our website at kalmbachfeeds.com. That's K-A-L-M-B-A-C-H feeds.com. Or order today on Amazon.com. Kalmbach Feeds is a proud sponsor of the Chicken Whisperer. Hey, it's the Chicken Whisperer here to tell you that if you have backyard poultry, nothing is more important than making sure your feathered friends are safe from infectious poultry diseases. Learn the simple steps to keep your birds healthy by visiting this website healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. That's healthybirds.aphis.usda.gov. A message from the USDA. This looks like a job for Super Chicken. You get the super sauce, I'll don my super suit. All right, thanks for staying with us today on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer. We're talking about poultry research translated with Dr. Bridget McRae. We'll bring her back live now from the switchboard. And uh, welcome back. We're ready to keep rolling with a couple more. Great, thank you. I came across one of these studies. It's very new. Um, came from California. Uh, Dr. Pateski is the uh, final author on it, so I think it's probably his grad student's project. And it's entitled Descriptive Survey and Salmonella Surveillance of Pastured Poultry Layer Farms in California. And this is uh, kind of a, an interesting survey that they did. Uh, it's, it's well known that pasture poultry is, 
is all across North America, as it is in California. And when you take a look at what the birds are exposed to and their biosecurity measures and their management methods, um, this is this is a whole lot like what I did with my master's project. Um, they sent a survey to 82 commercial pastured poultry farms, um, not broiler operations. These were egg operations. And they didn't get very many responses. Only 11 chose to respond. So whenever you're trying to get a bead on what people are doing, because everybody does things a little bit different, and you don't get a great response, you kind of got to go, great, what do I do now? So what they did next, um, because their response rate was low, um, although it was above 10%, they went and did some in-person interviews and farm visits. Um, They did drag swabs. I'll explain that. Uh, In commercial industry, um, you have large mounds of chicken manure underneath the cage systems, and uh, what they do to sample for salmonella in the birds is they will drag a swab along each side of that pile. The fresh manure is on top, and then they will bag up those swabs that are usually um, have a little bit of double-strength skim milk, milk mixed in with them. Uh, to keep the the bacteria alive until they're cultured. And they did the same drag swab, and we're looking for salmonella and aridotus. So, you know, that's a a simple thing that is always done in commercial industry, so they did it when they did the farm visit um, to find out, well, geez, are we finding salmonella? And on average... They found that the farms utilize about 12.3% of their total farmland for pastured operations. Um, and often they mixed with other livestock uh, species. Um, that was in 45% of the cases. And we know, we know that salmonella can cross the species barrier. That's why we get sick. And in 20%, 27% of the time, those pastured poultry came in contact with crops. So they, they called those touch crops. And then 45% of the time, the pastured poultry did not come in contact with crops. So that's okay. something to think about because they're, you, know, you can't have raw manure around your crops within 120 days of harvest. Or no, I think planting, sorry. Um, while... You know, they looked at the space that each bird had access to, and each bird in these pasture poultry operations had 44.6 square feet per hen. Not sure why this isn't in square meters, but that's what they have as as information. Um, That was the mean. The median was 22.2 square feet. So that's that's what we call uh, stocking density. That's how much space each bird has or how many birds um, on a single piece of land. Um, this is important when it comes to your your auditing agencies. Some of them have requirements. Some of them don't. And the rules are meant to change soon. Um, most auditing guidelines, the mean is 1.2 square feet per hen and the median is half a square foot per hen. 
for coop stocking densities. And the USDA is in the process of putting out some some guidelines that not everybody may be familiar with, but it's 7 CFR Part 205. And, you know, that's, that's something for, for people to consider, and those those really are the, the national organic standards that we're talking about there, because in organic production, you are required to give your birds outdoor access. <clears throat> so, um, drag swabs uh, yielded one farm that had salmonella, one out of the 11 farms. Um, they also looked at the Salmonella pylorum whole blood agglutination test. And th what that tells you is, like I said, I, I've said this in the past, the blood tells a history. Your blood tells you what you have now, what you will have had in the past. So, um, you know, depending on the level of antigens in your blood, you may have, if they're high, you've recently been sick. If they're low, well, you have it at one time, but you don't anymore. Um, and it may have been a while ago. So what they found is, by taking a look at the whole blood agglutination test, um, they looked at the, the laying hens on the, the farms that were included in the study. And they found antibodies for salmonella in six of the seven um, flocks that were not vaccinated for Salmonella and Aridididus. Yes, you can vaccinate for Salmonella and Aridididus. So, essentially, there the on-farm prevalence on those those six uh, farms was about 25 percent, 25.6 percent of the laying, laying hens had been exposed to Salmonella at some point. Um, so that's kind of interesting because we say to people, if you're going to have your birds have access to the outdoors, then please use biosecurity measures. And by the way that pastured poultry is raised, it is very difficult to implement good biosecurity just by the nature of what you're doing differently. And this kind of says, hey, look, they've got or have had salmonella because you're letting them have access to the out-of-door. Um, just keep in mind that commercial operators have to um, test regularly and they cannot have salmonella over a certain amount. Um, so, you know, this is, this is kind of a first step in the direction of, all right, what is the prevalence of salmonella in pastured flocks? And because if nobody's looked, no, nobody has any starting baseline anywhere. Um, let's see. And as far as, as how this is, is going to play out, you know, you can use it for your HACCP plan or your disinfection plan or your testing regimen um, later on down the line for your, your flock, just, just how it could be used. And I thought, just thought it was very interesting. Um, yeah. Now, when I did my research study, it was with free-range poultry and also birds that were bound for the Asian livefowl market, and that was over 20 years ago, and I, didn't, I can't remember the results to tell you right now, Andy, but I think we've talked about it in the past. Um, 
that might go find an old podcast of mine. <laughs> you might come across the info. Um, all my stuff's in storage, or I would refer to it. All right. So one of the last um, research trials I wanted to talk about um, came from Pakistan. Uh, it was really interesting because they used uh, a heritage breed of chicken, which we would call heritage breed, but apparently it's just their chicken. Um, they looked at the blood biochemistry and the immune response in the ACEL chicken, A-S-E-E-L, ACEL chicken, under three different kinds of rearing systems, free range, semi-intensive, and confinement. So I just love this study um, because by taking a look at the immune response to certain disease organisms and the blood biochemistry, you can see how this heritage breed is, is behaving. Now, they did look at four different strains of the ACE seal. They looked at the, I may pronounce this wrong, Laka, Mushki, Peshwari, and Sindhi. And they did this over the course of 10 weeks, when the birds were seven weeks old until they were 16 weeks old. So when the birds were six weeks old, they assigned um, a total of 180 cockerels into 12 different treatment groups, three different rearing systems and four different ACL varieties. So, and they randomized it. Um, five birds in each replicate and three replications, 45 birds of each variety, 60 birds in each rearing system. So there you go. They did blood samples and they collected it through the brachial vein at the end of week 16. So what did the laboratory analysis yield? Well, they looked at the blood biochemical profile and the immune response. Um, so one of the things they looked at was plasma glucose, total protein, and they also looked at the titer against Newcastle disease virus and infectious bronchitis virus. So this isn't something that I dabble in much, but when I looked at their literature review, basically um, they wanted to see, you know, that if you treat these birds, it costs money. So is, is, if you're letting these birds more in a free-range system, should you be treating them? Does it really yield, um, you know, something worth treating? Um, Total serum protein is used to, to determine the quality of the dietary protein. Um, they looked at biochemical parameters like, say, glucose, or, well, not glucose, but um, I'll list, um, let's see, where is that list? Uh, albumin, globulin, uric acid, creatinine, cholesterol, all those parameters they took a look at. And those were indicators of the immune status of the bird. They looked at glucose and triglycerides to see what the energy demand was for the maintenance of the, the body systems, the, the physiological and biochemical functions inside the body. So that's why they were looking at, at these particular factors. And I know we're running out of time here, Andy, so I will get to the point. All right. So... They found higher plasma glucose and higher total protein in birds that were under confinement. 
um, the bacteria or the sorry the virus titer against Newcastle disease virus and infectious bronchitis virus was found to be greater in birds that were in free range and semi-intensive um, systems. So in the semi-intensive system, they found more Newcastle disease virus. And in the free range system, they found more infectious bronchitis virus. The Peshwari ACL birds had higher concentrations of glucose, total protein, albumin, uric acid, creatinine, and higher titers to Newcastle disease virus and infectious bronchitis virus. Um, the Laka and Cindy birds, ACLs, uh, had the maximum antibody titer against both of those disease, diseases. And the cholesterol level was found to be higher in the Laka and the Cindy birds. Um, there was some sort of interaction between the Cindy birds and the free range system that found that the, the maximum cholesterol, um, there was a, a maximum level of cholesterol. But the Peshwari birds in the semi intensive system had a maximum antibody titer against Newcastle disease virus. So there were some interactions. It wasn't always broad against the, the four strains of ACLs. Um, their results basically yielded that um, the confinement rearing system affects glucose and total protein levels in birds. Um, the semi-intensive and free-range birds, they confer the maximum antibody titers to, um, to the diseases, the Newcastle disease virus and infectious bronchitis virus. So those birds were exposed. Birds of the Peshwari, did I get that right? Yeah, Peshwari variety had highest glucose, total protein, uric acid, albumin, and creatinine, and the lowest cholesterol under the free range system. So if you if you looked at if you wanted to do this like say in our system, what if you what if you took a look at buckeyes? But not everybody's buckeye is exactly the same. What if you get a buckeye from ideal versus the buckeyes that are raised by Stromberg versus the buckeyes that are raised by Mount Healthy or the buckeyes raised by um, Murray McMurray. You might want to compare those four different strains and see how they do in the same system. So that's kind of what they were doing here in different housing systems and looking at the bird's response. So I just found that really interesting because I still find heritage breeds very, very satisfying in, in seeing their inclusion in research. So there you go, listeners, a little bit of research going on in the world that, that may have relevancy to your home backyard flock. Andy, are you there? And I had myself on mute. Oh. Um, I had to reboot. <laughs> I got I got some kind of virus, and it was telling me some kind of Windows 10 crap, and I decided to reboot, and I put myself on mute, and I just started yapping about, I'll repeat myself, because <laughs> y'all didn't hear me, um, especially if you have a backyard flock, 
um, with uh, with kids. You know, just just some examples of how, especially 4-H FFA, it doesn't have to be though. How you can do your own backyard studies, whether it be different breeds or kind of, you know, maybe a little bit hard to be, you know, raised differently. But um, there's there's every time you come on, you you give suggestions to folks to have the kids that can say, hey, what about this? This would be a great school project or a great poultry project, FFA or 4-H or whatever the case may be. So um, I think it's fascinating, and there's just there's always so many that I'm like, oh, I wish I could do that, or I wish I could do this, wish I could do that one, and. Um, and of course, my push would be, ooh, I wish I could do a study to uh, prove this wrong that was just posted on social media that's going viral when you know it's no research behind it. <laughs> oh my goodness, it's like uh, I don't know, it's like eating a Snickers every day prevents colds because I eat a Snickers every day and I haven't had a cold in a long time. That that's the oh that's social media science for you right there, so um, just fascinating. Well, you know, not but, every journal is is created equal, and it's good that people are doing research, but there's also bad research. You want to submit your research to a, a journal that has a high impact factor, and actually, in poultry, the best impact factor is um, poultry science that I'm aware of. It might be British poultry science, but I'm pretty sure it's poultry science. Um, the Journal of Applied Poultry Sciences or Poultry Research is, a, is another high impact factor uh, journal. So you know you want to you want to stay away from the journals that publish for profit, and um, they are out there. Trust me, I know. I've seen them. They make me cringe. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, follow the money, right? Yeah. <laughs> You hear that a lot. Well, hey, thanks for coming and joining us um, today. That's, as always, a couple of times a month, it looks like. Now it's going to be kind of tricky for April because I will be traveling the country. And so we'll look at, uh, if I look over at April, it looks like uh, the 6th and the 20th are your assigned days. So we'll just have to play that by ear, where I'm going to be, what I'm going to be doing, if I'm going to be. Okay. At the hotel where I can set up and, and broadcast, or whatever the case may be, so uh, I'll keep you posted on those days in April. Have fun. Cool. And I got your message. I'll give you a call a little bit later. And um, thank you very much for coming on and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. Thanks, Andy. Take care. You too. Bye bye. Again, that's uh, another great episode of Poultry Research Translated with Dr. Bridget McRae. So glad when she's on. Uh, she now, too, uh, has a kind of a big fan base uh, from coming on the show, writing for our magazine, and and um, writing for uh, co-authoring my first book, and then participating in the second book, uh, Chicken Fact or Chicken Poop. Um, so, wow, she's been a really a mainstay here with uh, Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisper for many, many, many years. So uh, I'm glad that she comes on and shares all of her knowledge. It's going to wrap up another episode. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week here. Uh, same place, same channel, same time probably, here on Backyard Poultry with the Chicken Whisperer, brought to you by our good friends over at Kalmbach Feeds. God bless everybody. Uh, uh, uh.